Today, as we approach Chaf Sivan, we will replay an episode from last year about the history and significance of Chaf Sivan. As we will see, this day has an interesting history of being taken very seriously at first, only to eventually slip back into oblivion. So what happened on Chaf Sivan? How was this day observed? And when did it begin to fade? Chav Sivan, the 20th of Sivan, is an important day on the Jewish calendar. Let's have a look at the Taz. The Taz is Eir Chaim, Simen Tov Kuf, Samach Vav, writing in the 17th century. The Taz writes as follows. Venidali, it seems to me, The Tainus that was enacted, we'll talk a little bit more about the language in a second. Le'is Anois, Bechol Chav Sivan, to fast on the 20th of Sivan every year, because of the terrible persecutions that occurred So in this situation, you're gonna read even if it falls Monday and Thursday. Monday and Thursday, we're gonna read, we read a regular Kriya Satayra, but if it falls on a Monday or a Thursday, then, we push off the uh, regular reading and we read Vayachal because of the tainus that we are having. And he concludes this note by saying, This tainus is set. It's permanent. It's, it's, import, its importance exceeds that of the Monday and Thursday after Pesach and Sukkot, which is known as the tainus Bahab. There's a concept of fasting three, a series of three fasts after Pesach and after Sukkot, the reasons for this fast is beyond the scope of this class, but during Bahab, when you're having a community that's doing Bahab, they push off the Kriya Satayra, the Parsha Sashavuot, to read Vayechal. So if that's the case for Bahab, how much more so that would be the case for the Tainus of Chav Sivan, because the Tainus of Chav Sivan is more permanent, is more integral to the Jewish calendar than Bahab is. This is what the Tainus, this is what he says. What is the Xadis that he's talking about? Why is there a fast on the Chaf Sivan? The Taz doesn't elaborate and doesn't say anything about it. So this is something that will be a major focus in today's uh, class. I should point out that he says that if Chaf Sivan falls out on Monday or a Thursday, we read Vayichal. It turns out that Chaf Sivan in our calendar can never fall out on a Thursday. It could only fall out on a Monday. Okay. Well, why is that? That's just the way the calendar is set up. In the Sefer, Dvar Yoyim Be'yoyimoy, the Sefer, uh, he, every day of the year, he tells you what days it could and can fall out on. Okay. Now, who's the Shalosh Aratzais Betzidov Goinim? What does this mean? When the Jewish people were allowed, given a charter to settle in Poland, they were given, unlike in many other places, a significant degree of autonomy to regulate their own affairs. Uh, so much so that it essentially operated as a state within a state. Um, the Jewish communities had the powers of taxation, imprisonment, corporal punishment, and many other things that a government would normally, uh, that it normally does. And uh, this had a lot of milas, uh, probably had some chesreinus as well. Uh, and uh, this uh, organization had different names depending on the time. Sometimes it was called the Vad of Arba Arotzeis, is, is, usually, is the more common name. Uh, and, it, this, and sometimes it's called Shalosh Aratzis. This has to do with how many regions in Poland are part of the organization. And this ebbed it changed throughout history. Uh, but this was an organization that ran in the 1500s, in the 1600s, up until the time of the Baal Shem Tev, and toward the end of the Baal Shem Tev's life, it started petering out. And sometime in the 1760s, the Polish government closed it down and said, no, no more, we don't want to have a state within a state uh, a anymore. Um, now, Betzidov Goenim means that the way it worked is that Balabatim ran the show. Balabatim were in charge of this organization. It was political. They had to interact with the Polish government. But it was done Betzidov Goenim. All the important decisions were always made by the Gdele Ador, had a serious say on all uh, uh, matters. They had a veto over things, and, they, and they, they would meet twice a year. The leaders would meet twice a year. They have these big uh, summits. 
and the Rabbanim would get together, the Balabatim get together, they would discuss all the big issues in Polish Jewry, and also we know this was a great time for Shaduchim, people would go to, the, to, to these big fairs, and they would uh, make Shaduchim for their children as well. So that's what the Taz means over here, that the Vad Arba Arotzes, or here he calls it the Vad of Sholosh Arotzes, they got together, and they said that we're going to be fasting on the 20th of Sivan because of some terrible persecution that occurred, without telling us any information about it. This organization of the Vad Arba Aratis is from the mid 16th century into the into the 18th century, into the 18th, well into the 18th century. Okay. Now there's also the Magen Avram. The Magen Avram is the same generation as the Taz, also doing the same work of writing a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, and uh, he was a little younger than the Taz. But he lived in the same era, and he writes in his commentary, In the entire kingdom of Poland, we fast on the 20th of Sivan. Uh, here he uses this different language. He says, I'm not sure how much to read it. Huh? Great question. Does what we're learning here have anything to do with the custom of Dafke reciting of Arachman on Shabbos Mavorchem Sivan? So, as I'm going to explain, uh, hopefully later on, the answer to that is not really, not really. Uh, but we'll get, we'll get there soon. Okay, so he uses the language of noyagin, which makes it sound a little more like a minig, which is less than the language of the Taz, where the Taz said that it's more kavua than beiz vehei, it's, it, 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 excuse me, more kavua than bahab, and he used the language shegozru, which sounds like it was a rabbinic enactment, and a rabbinic chiyuv. Okay, this is going to play a role later on in this year. Okay. But what's our driving question now? Our question is, what happened what, that led to a fast on Chav Sivan? And the answer is, it's actually interesting, that the answer is more than one thing. More than one thing. So let's start all the way in the beginning. And now we're going to do some time travel. And we're going to go back to the time of the Deshoinim, the times of Bali Atosvis. This is the year 1171 in France, to a little, little tiny place that is called Blois. B-L-O-I-S. I'm... Did I mention it? Possibly. Possibly. And um, we have an account that is written in Sefer Aschira. Sefer Aschira was written by someone who lived during this time. Rabbi Ephraim of Bonn was born in 1132. And so in 1171, when this event happened, he was already an adult. And he wrote the way he understood the events, how they transpired and occurred. And this was transmitted in manuscript, and Jews had it for many centuries. And it saw a print for the first time in the 16th century uh, in a history sefer, someone quoted from him, and, and um, Rabbi Yosef HaKoyen has a sefer, uh, a history sefer that is called um, uh, Eme And in Eme Kabacha, he quotes from, uh, from the story. So what's the story? Let's read the story. It happened in the year, I'm going to... I'm going to summarize in English as we go through this uh, thing. Not going to read the Hebrew. It happened in the year 1171, where a terrible calamity be, uh, fell upon the Jewish people in France, in the city of Blois, where there were about 40 Jews who lived in that city. It happened on one day, toward evening, that there was a Jewish uh, rider who went to go feed his horse. And there was a soldier or servant who was there, uh, may God erase his name, who was uh, uh, giving drink to his own uh, horse. Uh, the Jew had in his, uh, uh, on his body was carrying some sort of hide, some sort of animal hide with him. The, so, the horse saw, um, the horse of the non-Jew saw this hide. Somehow it became afraid of what it saw, jumped backward and refused to drink from the water. Okay, so the non-Jewish servant uh, gets all uh, scared from this event, and he goes back to his master, and he decides to turn this, in short, into a blood libel. He says, listen, master, to what happened. I saw a Jew, and I followed him to the river uh, to bring water to your, uh, to give water to your horse. I saw that he's throwing a small Gentile into the river, uh, one who was killed by the non-Jews. And when I saw this, I got scared, and obviously the horse also got scared from the splash of the, bait of the child being thrown into the water, and so the horse refused to drink. He knew, the, the servant knew, 
that his master wanted to hear this accusation because he knew that his master hated a certain Jewish woman in the city, uh, a prominent Jewish woman in the city. Uh, and therefore, he said what he said. And uh, the, um, uh, uh, the, the non-Jewish master said, now I can take my uh, revenge from this Jewish woman whose name was Poltzelina. He goes to the leader of the city. We know from other sources that the leader was a count. The count, his name was Theobald. Theobald V. He goes to him and he tells uh, him what happened. Uh, Theobald gets upset. He uh, takes all of the Jews in Blois. Remember there are 40 of them and he locks them up in jail. Uh, Mrs. Polsalina um, was giving everyone chizuk, uh, strengthening their spirit. Why? She said that she has connections with the Count who really likes her very much. She's obviously someone who's a prominent woman, she's wealthy, she has connections with money, uh, something of that sort. Uh, and uh, so therefore she's saying, don't worry, this is gonna blow over uh, soon and we'll, we'll take care of this. Uh, everyone was tied up except for her. However, the, the, the police, so to speak, didn't allow her to speak to the Count. And the reason they didn't allow her to speak to the Count, they were sure that had she spoken to the Count, that she would have convinced the Count to let all the Jews go, and so they didn't let it happen. Just goes to show how much influence uh, she had on him. Uh, now, at this point, they start, what happens at this point in the story is they start monetary negotiations. And uh, the question that Theobald has to the Jews is how much are you guys gonna pay for your freedom? Uh, they send a Jew uh, they, they ask this question. So what happens is that the Jews get together and they have a conversation with non-Jews and with, uh, in other words, Jews, Jews who aren't arrested, aren't incarcerated, uh, meet with non-Jews, discuss what should we do, what should we give. They go to the prison and they meet the Jews who are imprisoned and they come up with a sum. The amount of money that they're going to give is 100 pounds. Is 100 pounds, which is not a lot of money. The way it's written in the account is uh, they didn't give uh, an amount more than a uh, hundred pounds. Uh, why is this? This comes back to the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, It is forbidden to redeem captives for more than their worth. Their worth being what they would earn on the slave, what they would earn on the slave market. And Jews were very sensitive to this at this period of time with the, having the simple fear that if we're going to overpay for our freedom, what's going to stop them from taking us again uh, in the future? There's a famous story of Maram Rottenberg uh, in this regard, but that's more than 100 years later. That's more than 100 years later. Uh, the bottom line is they don't give a lot of money. They say we'll forgive some of our debts. Remember, Jews are money lenders at this time. So many non-Jews owe money to Jews. So part of the concession is we'll give you some money. We'll We'll also release uh, 180 pounds in terms of uh, debts owed to us by non-Jews. Uh, and it seems like that was not enough to get their freedom. And then a priest came. No name is given for this priest, but this priest basically convinces Theobald that he should um, kill the Jews unless they convert. And that's what happens here. Uh, they take the Jews uh, to a house. They uh, 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 prepare to burn it. Uh, they tell them on their way to this house that if you uh, convert, uh, that's fine. Um, but if not, uh, if not, then you know what's going to happen. Uh, the account goes on to say over here how the Jews actually did something really interesting. You don't see this uh, in, all diff in, in many stories of our persecution. They took a non-Jew hostage with them and brought the non-Jew into, into this house, making it impossible for them to burn uh, to burn it because the non-Jewish person who was in there. But ultimately, they extracted uh, the non-Jew from there, uh, and they did. Uh, none of the Jews in this account are said to have converted. Um, and they, lay, they, they did uh, put fire to the building, and it says that 32, 32 Jews perished. In other words, there were eight Jews in the city who, who, did, um, who did survive. Uh, the account goes on to say that their bodies were not harmed, uh, only their neshama left but their bodies were not harmed, and even the non-Jews attested uh, to this. And then he ends off by saying, this happened 
Bishnas Tov Tov Kuf Lamed Aleph, which is the year 1171. Bidavi Bishabbos on a Wednesday. Be'esrim Lachoy De Sivan on the 20th of Sivan. And Ve'roi Lekoiva Yom Tzayim Ketzayim Gedaya. It is appropriate for this to turn into a fast like Tzayim Gedaya. Who wrote this? Who wrote that it is appropriate for this to be a fast? Rabbi Ephraim of Bon? No. Kechal HaDvarim Ha'ela Kosvu Bo'orleans Be'ir HaKroiva Ochal Le'Hakoidash About an hour's drive from Blois is the French city of Orleans. The people in Orleans wrote a letter, and they wrote to Rav Rabbeinu Yaakov, they wrote to this Rabbeinu Yaakov, we'll talk, this is Bapashtus Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Tam, they wrote to Rabbeinu Tam, and they're the ones who said, here's the story, what happened? We think this is so bad, this is like Tzayim Gedalia, there should be, there should be a, um, there should be a, uh, a fast that is instituted uh, uh, for, uh, for this. Uh, <clears throat> the letter continues. The narrative, the, the letter from Orleans went further and said that when the fire was going up in flame, in flames, they heard the Jews singing. What were they singing? They were singing Aleinu L'Shabeach. We spoke about this when we did a class on Aleinu L'Shabeach in Elul uh, because why they sing Aleinu L'Shabeach? We think of Shema Yisrael as being the thing Jews would say in this very unfortunate situation. But as we showed then, Aleinu L'Shabeach was understood in this period of time as being a very um, intense uh, anti-Christian uh, polemic. And we showed how that worked with gematria and with censorship and with all of that. So it makes a lot of sense that uh, Jews said Aleinu L'Shabeach. There is no mention over here of, uh, of Shema Yisrael. One has to do research to actually find. We know the famous Gemara by Rabbi Akiva that he said Shema Yisrael when he was being killed on the Sirius Nefesh. But in terms of later generations, one has to do a little research to figure out where uh, that starts. Maybe it's before this, maybe it's after this, I don't know. The account in, uh, in Sefer Aschira continues and says as follows. Um, where are we? So on that Wednesday, the 20th of Sivan, 1171, France, Bohemia, like that's like Czechoslovakia today, Verainos, uh, that's the Rhineland in Germany, they all agreed to do a Hespid and fasting. By the, per the command of Yaakov ben Meir, Rabbeinu Tams, Yaakov ben Meir, right? His brother is Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, Yaakov, his, his younger brother is Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Yaakov ben Meir. He wrote to them letters, and he said, This should be a fast for all our people. Sounds like not just for the Jews in France, it's for all Jews should be a fast. Greater than Tzayim Gedalia. In other words, in Orleans, the rabbis of Orleans sent a letter to Rabbeinu Tam and said, we think this should be a fast like Tzayim Gedalia. Now, why exactly it said Tzayim Gedalia? Not entirely sure, but on the one hand, it's a fast associated with the murder of someone, whereas Tishabov and Shivasar Batamov and Asar Batavis are not about the murder of people. They're about national institutions. So the Jews in Orleans were looking for a precedent, and they said, oh, Tzayim Gedalia, a Yid was killed, and we made a fast. So here, many Yidin were killed, so we should make a fast. Rabbi Nutam comes back and says, it's greater than Tzayim Gedalia, ki yoyim kipurim hu. Yoyim kipurim hu. Didn't explain what he meant by that. What do you mean by Yom Kippurim? Is he trying to say that it's more Chamor the fast? Halachically, is he trying to say that the day is, is, is a day where atonement is possible? A Jew could achieve atonement on this day because of the Mesir Nefesh that j- these Jews had? He didn't explain. This is what Rabbeinu Tam wrote. So obviously, um, th- this story has a number of themes. There's the powerful Jewish woman who has connections where it doesn't turn out in her benefit. She, do, she isn't able to pull the strings uh, anymore. And the person who's writing the story felt the need uh, to insert that into the narrative. There's the monetary aspect of it, the negotiation that then gets canceled when the religious fanatic, the priest, comes and says, no, it's or conversion or death. And then it's the story of Kiddush Hashem, the Jews saying that they refuse to do this uh, and uh, fighting back for themselves, but then uh, ultimately giving up their lives uh, in order not to deny, uh, not to renounce uh, their Judaism. Now, if this is Rabbeinu Tam, what's interesting about that? Rabbeinu Tam passed away, the best evidence we have suggests, without getting into the details, in 1171, the very same year. The very same year. There's a Ksav Yad that the uh, rabbi found in the 1800s 
that says a simon. What's the simon? There's a, on the side of Rashi, there's a, a xavia from Rashi, and it says when Rashi passed away, and then it says that Vayomer Elikim El Yaakov. His name is Yaakov, so he passed away. The simon is El. He passed away in the year El. El is 31. 1171 is the year, the tough, tough Kuf Lamed Aleph. Lamed Aleph is El, uh, and that's the simon to know that he passed away that year. Now, say that Adoidus, written in the 1700s by uh, Rabbi Halprin, say that Adoidus writes that he saw a source that he died, that Rabbi Nutan passed away on Dalit Tamos. So now, if you take that, Dalit Tamos, tough, tough Kuf Lamed Aleph, that's literally two weeks after this event. So Rabbi Nutan hears about the event, says the fast is not a Tzayim Gedalia, should be a Yom HaKippurim, and two weeks later, he passes away around the age of 70 years old. So when Rabbeinu Tam passed away. It's tempting, and people have done this, but there's no way to prove it, to say. It adds a little bit of a literary uh, flourish to it if you say that the Tsar of the event. Now, is it possible? Of course it's possible. Is it reasonable? Is it reasonable? Is there a way to prove that? There's absolutely no way uh, to prove it. But uh, this is... Um, now, we may look back at this and say, oh, hold on a second. Really? There's... What, this is a terrible story, but there's so many terrible stories in Jewish history. What happened here that the Jews got so shook up that in Orleans they said, that's in Gedalia. And Rabbeinu Tam said, no, it's a Yom Kippur. What, what happened over here? This is the first blood libel on continental Europe. Which means as follows. In the previous decades, there was a blood libel in England. Very famous first ones are in England. This is the first one that came to continental Europe. So for Rabbeinu Tam and the Jews who are living in France, this is the first blood libel that's in their backyard. This began, what we now know, a continuous history of many, many dozens of blood libels, many hundreds of blood libels, most of which we never even heard about. But it's something that continued after this again and again and again. And not only was it a blood libel, the Jews were condemned by the government officials, which didn't happen in England. The government officials came and took the Jews and punished them collectively. What's also important to note in this story, there was never a body, there was never a dead boy, there was no, no missing child, there was nothing. The, what I failed to say before was what was the evidence that was used in this case? The witness, they gave him a trial by ordeal. What is a trial by ordeal? He says that he saw. How do we know if he's saying the truth or not? We're going to put him in water. If he floats to the top, so then it's uh, proof that he's saying the truth. If he dies from drowning, then it's uh, proof that he's lying. But, and when they did the test, this account, say Rabbi Ephraim of Bon says, when they did the test, they manipulated it in such a way that he floated, and this was the evidence that was used to condemn an entire, uh, an entire, uh, an entire community. So this is the trauma that happens in this, uh, in this time, and a, fast <coughs> is, and a fast is instituted, and as you can see, at least initially, this is a very, very serious time. And now, let's talk about some of the liturgy that was used at this time. Rebbe Ephraim of Bonn had a brother, and his brother, I believe, his name was Hillel, and he wrote a piyot. He wrote a piyot, a liturgical poem, called Emunei Shloimei, Emunei Shlumei Yisrael, that was read on Yom Kippur. You know, on Yom Kippur, where we do that part of the Asari Ruge Malchus, and then we, you know, what's happening there? We're talking about Jewish suffering. We're talking about Jewish suffering. Uh, at a certain point, it's not entirely clear when and how, it was decided that in addition to talking about Slicha, Mechila, and Kapara, and Yom Kippur, we should talk about Jewish suffering. And so we have the Asari Ruge Malchus. This is a Slicha section at the end of Musaf. They added a lot more. If you go through these old Machzorim, you see there's many, many more pages of other material. And they took a... They, in Ashkenaz, yeah. Yeah, he's saying, till today there are Nuschois that have a more material. So one of the piyutim is the piyut emunei shlumei Yisrael. Now, it's not an easy read, but what you're able to see is it has a full account of this story. Let's look at some of the lines. Let's read the first uh, paragraph. Emunei Shlumei Yisrael, faithful and peace-seeking Jews, Gizrasam Kishoyam, who were formed and made out of sapphire stone, Netashtam, Zenachtam, God, you abandoned them and let them loose, Va'yisar Kigibar Nidham, and you were like a hero who's quiet because you didn't intervene. Besitcha Biyad Tibolt Hamazoyam, by putting them in the hand of Theobalt. Now what's interesting is that in later in generations, people looked at this piyot, they had no clue what biyad tibalt hamazoyam, and they didn't know what tibalt is. So they changed it, and in the later centuries, it became rasha hamazoyam. But if you go back to the original kisayad, you see that it says tibalt hamazoyam. 
Okay, that's the next paragraph. Be'esrim besivon, the 20th of Sivan, goimer peiros humafriach, when fruits are completed. This is a reference to the fact that on Shvuis, probably, uh, on Shvuis, it says um, fruits uh, have their judgment. Betov tov kuf lamed alef leprat, that's the year. Okay, um, next paragraph. They all, when they heard about their choice, they all agreed together. Kibisin, like with Sinai, uh, they all return, They all uh, responded. loyalty to God. Kulam All of them are the children of one father. A complete bed. This is a story. Yaakov Avinu is mitase shleima. All of his children served God, believed in Achtos Hashem. Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekenu Hashem Echad. So they followed in that tradition. Okay. Um, uh, two paragraphs down. Vayoimru lohoitzi oisan leveis hasreifa. It was said to take them out to be burnt. Yachtov yachtov samchu kachnochsas kala lechupa. They were happy like a kala going to the chupa. Aleinu lishabeach shipchu benefesh kesufa. They praise God. With the song Aleinu L'Shaveach, which we have in the other account. This is God, the male in Shira Shirim, saying about his bride how beautiful uh, she is. Uh, in the next paragraph, uh, uh, he talks about the number of deceased. And here we have a discrepancy. Here he says, It's 31. In Ephraim of Bon, we had 32 people who were killed. In the next paragraph, he talks about the women. There were women here that were killed as well. Um, and in the next paragraph, you'll see the words, It is appropriate that we establish strong prayer uh, in their memory and that we fast and that we pray uh, for them, on behalf of them, inspired by them. And then in the next paragraph, remember what Abinu Tam said about Yom HaKippurim? Look what it says here. Pedus v'chapara yechoikeku liyishurun basefer. Atonement will be uh, given to the Jewish people. Yeshua is the Jewish people. Uh, their schus is going to stand for the Jewish people. And and they will be an atonement for all of the Jewish people. So you see this atonement language in, built in to the peel. This was said, as we said before, uh, for many years uh, in the Slichis and the Musif of Yom Kippur. And perhaps there are some people who still uh, say it today in, in their davening. However, if you look around at Jewish writings from the 1200s and the 1300s, although this piyot was said in the 1400s and the 1500s, in Ashkenaz, although this piyot was said, and it was said every Yom Kippur, you don't really see anyone talking about Chav Sivan. You don't see any sources talking about fasts. When you look at the sources, the halachic sources, the Menhagim sources that you have from this kufa, the 1500s is a lot. The 1400s is also a lot. The 13th, the 12th, you don't really see so much. There's very little writing that has on Chav Sivan. And that leads some people to believe. And you'll see. We'll come back to Al-Varachim soon. We'll come back to Al-Varachim soon. So this, this is good reason to believe that somehow the tainus starts dissipating. The tainus starts falling apart. And by the time we reach the 17th century, it doesn't look like anyone is really fasting anymore. And that becomes very interesting. How do you have a fast that's so serious that Rabbeinu Tam said it should be on the level of Yom Kippur and that's for all Jews? How does it happen that it becomes forgotten? Is it because of immigration? Is it because Jews are moving? Is it because of other persecutions that are overshadowing? Whatever it may be, we don't entirely know. Uh, the reality is that by the time we come to the mid-17th century, there is no fast for Chav Sivan anymore. And that leads us to the next part of, uh, the, next part of the story. In 1648-1649, there was the famous massacres in Poland and Ukraine, the Chamelitsky massacres. In a nutshell, what happened here was that the Ukrainians revolted against the Poles. The Poles were controlling the territory and the money. They had everything. And the Ukrainians were basically serfs. The Jews were representing an agents of the Poles. And so as part of this uh, revolt, that the Ukrainians had against the, against the Polish, they also uh, killed many, many Jews. And this went on for a very long time, two years. Many thousands of Jews uh, were killed at this time. There are a number of Svarim and accounts that talk about what happened. Perhaps the most famous one is Rav Nassim Nata Hanover. 
Nasanata Hanover was an eyewitness to the accounts. He runs away. He writes a book and publishes it just a few years after. This is 1648-49 and 1653. He prints in Venice, or by this time you already have printing, he prints a sefer called Yevain Metzula. Yevain Metzula is words in Tehillim, where it says, Tavati Bivain Metzula. I am, dr- I am sinking in, a Metzula is deep waters, but Yevain is mud. So I'm sinking in muddy deep waters. But he, so he called the sefer Yevain Metzula, he could understand why. But there's also something deeper that's happening with his name. The revolt, the war, was the Ukrainians. What was their religion? There was a religious issue here as well. The Poles were Catholics. The Ukrainians, as well as the Russians, are Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox. So while there's a lot that unites them, there's a lot that divides them as well, like Adayim, for example, the nittel is observed differently if you live in those countries. Why is that? Because they observe that their holiday on different days. They're not part of the Catholic Church. They don't recognize the Pope. So part of this was also a religious war. In fact, pr- primarily it was a religious uh, war in the sense of probably more than a, nas- uh, 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 more than, um, a nationalistic issue. So that's Yavon is Greek. He probably has that in the name, Yevain Metsula. Now, let's summarize. This is a huge safer. He discusses so many different elements of the persecution over a period of two years in so many communities in such a huge region. One, just for a small taste. It happened on Wednesday. The, four, the 20th of Sivan, the Cossacks came near the city of Nemirov. What did the Cossacks do? They made banners and flags that were similar to the Polish ones. The residents, the non-Jewish residents of the city knew that this was trickery. They told the Jews who went to hide in a fortress, open up! The soldiers who have come are not Ukrainian Cossacks. These are Poles who have come to help you. They opened the gate. And they killed many Jews. Men, women, they raped the women. There were women who jumped uh, into the, around uh, fortresses. It's often the case that there's a, um, a body of water. They jumped into that in order not to be raped. Uh, this is an example of suicide in order to avoid this, which is an interesting discussion about the permissibility of suicide under these circumstances, which is not our topic for today. He goes on to say that there was a Rosh Yeshiva in Nemerov. His name was Rabbi Yechiel Michal, the son of Rabbi Eliezer. He knew Kala Kula Baal He was Baki and all the Chachmas Ba'ila. The Shabbos before, there, there was already trouble going on. There was, this is not the first attack against the Jewish community in the year 1648. There had been other ones prior to this. And they knew about it. There was very limited things that they were able to do. And he gave a speech and he said that if the enemy comes... No one should convert. We should be Mekadeh Shem Shemaim. And that's exactly what happened. Goes on to say that there was a young woman, a beautiful woman, from a very important family and a wealthy one, who a Kazakh managed to kidnap her and to take her and to marry her. Before he managed to have relations with her, she said to him in a manner of trickery that she has the ability to do an amazing skula. No weapons could hurt her. Really? No weapons could hurt you? Yeah, yeah, really, try me out. No weapons could hurt me. Take your gun, shoot me, you're gonna see, nothing's gonna happen. Well, this guy wasn't too intelligent, and he did that, and she obviously died. Um, now, what's happening here, he's telling us this story, that this is an example of the Kiddush Hashem that a woman had at uh, this time in order to avoid uh, conversion and living with a non-Jew. Okay, now you obviously noticed that when did this happen? When did this attack on Nemerov happen? It happened on Chafsiva. Let's hold that information. Another account that we have of these massacres comes from none other than the Shach. The Shach, we mentioned before the Taz, we mentioned before the Magan Avram, in that conversation of these great first generation commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, who lived in the 17th century, was the Shach, he lived in Vilna, and he, after these events, wrote also Piyotim. This is a very, although it happens not so much today, for a rabbi, a big Tamad Chacham, to write a liturgical poem after an event, after a negative event. And the Shach did so. He wrote Slichis. He wrote Slichis for Xedus Tachvata. And he also wrote an introduction, Hakdama. This was printed in Amsterdam in 1651. Again, right after, two years after. This is printed uh, in Amsterdam, very far away, but this is where Jewish printing was excelling in this period of time. He called this introduction 
Megillas Ayefa. Okay. And he says as follows. He recounts what happened in Nemerov as well. They, about 50 people, they came into Nemerov using trickery. They killed 6,000 Jews. Nefashis Kedoshim. They destroyed the base Mikdashmat. They destroyed the shul. Yes, this is Tafatah. They took all the Sifrei Torah, the old ones and the new ones, and they tore them to pieces. And when did this happen? On Wednesday, the 20th, the Chodesh Sivan, a day that is cursed um, for us Jews, because also the Gzeira, he's the first one to kind of make the link, also the Gzeira of 1171 <coughs> happened on that day. So he has memory, he knows uh, about uh, what happened in 1171, and he says, uh, this is a problematic day, Chav Sivan is a problematic day. He then goes on to say, therefore, I have made for myself and for my descendants a day of fasting and a day of mourning. When? On the day of the 20th of Sivan. Why? Jump a line. Yan he gives three reasons why he chose Chav Sivan as a day for a Tainus. Number one, This day is the beginning. What does he mean, the beginning? The first real big attack on a big city is Nemerov. There were some skirmishes before. And so because we need to choose a day over a two-year period, you need to choose the beginning. What's the beginning? Okay, Nemerov for him is going to be the beginning. And that's why he's choosing that day. Vigam, a second reason. Because there are other, we have a long history with this day. Kigam Zedas Tav Tav Kuflamer Aleph, 1171, many generations ago. Vigam, a third reason. The 20th of Sivan, I said before, it can't fall on a Thursday, it also cannot fall on a Shabbos, which means it wouldn't have the problem of pushing off a fast. Uh, he concludes I wrote these slichis crying and with pleading to say it that it should be said every single year now you need to notice here he's making like this fast is his own personal humrah for his family right? why is that? he doesn't live in Poland there's different regions he's in Lithuania and it seems that in Lithuania they weren't macabre the fast he was macabre this fast and so, therefore, he's making it personal. That may be the explanation for what's, uh, for what's happening here. Okay. Uh, one more uh, source about these uh, persecutions relates to another God of Israel who lived at this time, none other than the Taisus Yomtev. The Taisus Yomtev lives far away. He's not in the line of attack. He lives in Krakow. Krakow was in Poland proper, not under attack at all. And he also wrote Slichus. And the printer, when he printed the slichus, wrote uh, a hagdama. It's printers at this time called themselves a mechoikek because you're carving out the type, the metal type that you're using to print. So, Amar HaMechoikek. This is printed in Krakow in 1650. And the printer says as follows. And here he says like this. When you had the chiefs, of the Vad Arba Arotzes, Rosheyem, Manigeyem, Vahalufim, Asher Berosham, Hagoinim, Rosh Yeshivis, Vahav, Vahav, Bateidin, Biyosem, Bizvadus, Tequilas, Kodesh, Lublin. They use the word Izvadus, not a Fabreng, and this is what I was saying before about the summits that they had. They came to Lublin, Bengula, Ligula, between Purim and Pesach, the Shonazu, this year, Tof Yud, Leprat Koton, the year 19, uh, excuse me, the year 1650. So in the year 1650, Tachvatar is over, the leaders get together in the city of Lublin, which is where they gathered uh, every year, and uh, they have this summit. And Allah Hamuskam Beneam, and they agreed amongst themselves. And they accept it on their children as well. This is not a one-time thing. This is for the future. That in all four of the lands are going to fast. They're going to fast on the 20th of Sivan every year. On that day, the factor, the day is chosen by what? Nemerov. Shach gave us, the Shach gave us three reasons why Chav Sivan is a good day. They use one reason in this Takana. Now, again, we don't have the Takana. We have the printer telling us a summary of what the Takana was. Okay. Uh, oh, excuse me. He then goes on to say the second factor. Um, the, the second issue 
there was double persecution. She came ilifnim hoisa by ganking zera rabishnas tough tough koflam alalif lefrat kamaisha nimsa beslicha as we say in the slicha of Musaf Yom Kippur that we spoke about earlier. And here they go the rules. 18 and up, you need a fast. Interesting, right? The age. 18 and up, you need a fast. A girl, 15 and up, you need a fast. If you're uh, pregnant or nursing or sick, then they should um, uh, give money uh, for the fast. Everyone should really be giving money to tzedakah to support Loim de Torah. We're going to read Vayachal, Shachris Amincha, just like a regular Tainus Sibur. We're going to say Keomalei to remember. And we're going to say this Keomalei for them on every Yom Tif as well. So we... we there used to be a pinkus of the Vadar Baratas. It existed. It existed maybe even into the early 20th century. This was this huge binder that this government body wrote all their decisions in. It was lost. No one knows today where it is. It's been, no one has seen it since World War II. No one has seen it. So when people want to recreate what this binder looked like, they rely on bits and pieces. It says in a safer, oh, on this and this day and this and this time, the Vadar Baratas said the following. So there's someone, a scholar by the name of Halprin, who went and collected all these bits and pieces. And this is the piece he has for Tach Vatat. Because the printer of the Slichos in 1650 summarizes what the Vat Arbaratzes did uh, in order to make the fast after uh, Xeris uh, Tach Vatat. The printer then goes and says, so now I saw this, and I saw that Rabbi Yomtev Lipman Halevi Heller, the author of the Taisus Yomtev, wrote good slichis for a previous persecution that doesn't need to concern us here. Something happened to the Jews of Prague. And he wrote wonderful things. So I came to him and I said, no, you need to deliver a second time. And he did. And so hereby I'm printing it. This is the introduction that he writes to this. Uh, uh, to this. So if you take these sources together, what do you see? You see, then we opened with the Taz. And the Taz says about Vayechal and about the, about the, about the Kfiyas, about the, the Gzeira, of Shalosh Haratzis. Here he says Shalosh Haratzis, but that aligns with what we have the printer here telling us that it was Arba Haratzis who also made a very, very serious fast uh, uh, on this day. The Shach again talks about a personal meaning. Before I said, maybe it's because he's in Lithuania, maybe the Arba Haratzis isn't including Lithuania, but I'm not so sure about that. Maybe it's before, maybe he wrote that before uh, the uh, uh, 1650, the other of 1650, I'm not entirely sure. And I also don't know what to make of the Magan Avram saying a Lushan of Minig, which again, seems a lot softer than what we're seeing here in these sources. What's another thing we see in these sources? They're instituting a fast on Chav Sivan for an Ashkenazi community that all had origins in where? In Bohemia, in Germany, in the Rhineland, in France. That's where all the Jews in Poland came from. And yet, they're instituting a fast on the Chav Sivan. Why? Because by the 17th century, there is no fast for Chav Sivan. They knew about the event, but there was no fast anymore, which goes back to the point that I said earlier about uh, it being lost, and now it's being, re being brought back to life, so to speak. Now, there's another interesting thing from this Slichis, from the Taisis Yamtif. And basically, at the end, he has a Misha Beirach that's printed. And the printer puts a hagdama to this Misha Beirach. He writes as follows. When we found out here in Krakow about the terrible tragedy that happened in Emerov, so, let's, the language here is important. Az, kidei lahasir, I'm reading number eight. Kidei lahasir michshel ha'oven ha'gadol shal sicha shebebeis ha'kneses. So then, to remove the terrible sin of talking in shul, shahaseichel oisroi, which common sense forbids it. You know, if we don't talk in front of a king of flesh and blood, how much more so we wouldn't talk in shul. Uh, so because to remove that problem, so therefore the Taisus Yomtev made a Misha Beirach that the Chazan is going to say, and Ra'isi, me, the printer, I'm saying, I'm going to put it here into the Slichis, so that other communities will see this. This is being said in Prague. Now, the language here is important. There isn't language here of that the Taisus, at least not here, that the Taisus Yomtev said, you know why Tachvatat happened? Because Jews are talking in Shul. That doesn't, doesn't have that language here, at least not here. What you do see here is that he right away said, there is a physical crisis in Sarah, we need to up our spiritual game. What's a problem we all know exists? Talking in Shul. Talking in Shul is a topic for another class. There's a long history of talking in Shul. 
Very, very long history. It's not a new thing. You see it here in the 17th century. There are other sources from this school, from before and from after that are talking about this problem. And the Teisus Yomtev said, this is an area we need to get better at. And what does he do? He makes this Mishaberach. Turn to the next page to page four. Here's the words of the Mishaberach. Mishaberach. God will bless. Remember, Ashkenazim, they start their davening. Baruch Shamar is earlier. Okay? So the person who doesn't talk from Baruch Shamar till the end of davening, he's also not talking during Kriya. Even if it's Torah words. Certainly, if it's nonsense and rumors, right? How does information travel in the Jewish community? Through shul talking. Okay. She's going to have all the brachas. So v'chol and a voice. Yirizer akasher is going to have good children. Chayim v'kayim and healthy. V'yizkel l'shnei shulchanu shebishnei elamim. He's going to have two tables and two worlds. What are the two worlds? Olam hazeh and olam haba. Look what he says about olam hazeh. Sha'olav nemar v'hinei toiv. Very interesting. You don't find a, an emphasis in, in, in many sources about talking about the goodness of our world, the vehine toiv. I know it's in the first chapter of Bereshis, but there have been instances in where the Rebbe had to like, make the argument that oh, contrary to what you think, you should know the world of vehine toiv, right? Here you see that he put, in the aftermath of persecution and suffering, he puts the word about our way. It didn't need to be there. Somehow, that's Baal Taisus Yamtev, Rabbi Yamtev Litman Alevi Heller wanted people to think about this world as a good place. And he put it into this Amen. What is the history of how long this was said, who said it, where it was said? That's something that I didn't, uh, uh, that I didn't look into. We should reinstitute. Hmm? Oh, yes. re okay, so now, what happened in later generations? happened in later generations is that uh, we'll bring a few sources about Chaf Sivan, about Chaf Sivan. First of all, the Abderov, the Oyev Yisrael, who lived in the late seven, the second half of the, seven, of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, he once gave a speech on Chaf Sivan. So just from that, we gain information that it was not uncommon for the rabbi to get up and give a speech on a fast day. What did he say? He said that Chaf Sivan is the beginning of the Haschala of preparing for Yom Kippur. It's interesting because you have El, there are sources that say, uh, you know, I don't know, probably two Ba'av. Uh, so here you bring it up to already to Chaf Sivan. Chaf Sivan, and what's the Remez? Kiyod al Kais Yudke. So Kais is Chaf Sivan. Kais, Chaf Sivan. Yudke is Yem Hakipurim. And he said that there's a relationship between these two days. What's interesting about this is the Rabbeinu Tam that we had earlier. The, it's like Yom Kippur and the theme of Kapara that you have in the Piyot. So that makes it doubly interesting. Okay, now, I think the following source indicates, this is the 19th century, the following source indicates that Chaf Sivan here is falling back to its pattern. What's its pattern? A big Kach and very, very important to have a very, very serious fast that then people start forgetting about. Where do you see that? Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson was one of the great Rabbanim in this century. And he has a sefer on Shulchan Aruch called Yad Shol. And he writes over there that he once wrote a tshuva, though I didn't see if this tshuva is printed elsewhere or not, about Chav Sivan. Let's read what he says inside. He says, he writes, Since 1648, people are fasting. But people have said in the name of a gadol, he doesn't tell us who, Shaya Oimer who used to say, that if he survives to the year 1841, I will nullify this fast. Why? This rabbi argued that they only accepted it for two centuries. So that's 1648 to, well, 16, uh, 1841, uh, close enough. And the generations are weaker now, right? We know this language uh, with the, from the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe, the weaker bodies, fasting is less of a derech and avodah Hashem. And so there's someone who wanted to come and get rid of it. Now, in my tshuva, he says, I, I, I went into great depth on this subject. When a community makes a ban and says, everyone is bound by something, that's called a cheyrem. That's very, very serious. Maybe it was accepted forever. 
However, I said, Kasafti, I wrote, Yesh Makam Lahakil, that you could be Makal. Why? Given the Bishnas Tavches, you could assume that in the year 1648, they only wanted this fast for a century. Then it continued, and therefore you can uh, be Makal because they, 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 they're what's it called? A sunset clause. It has a sunset clause, it dies out after a certain amount of time, and just people continued as a minute. Now, if you just stopped here, Correct. He's saying that when they made it, two or three years, two years after, 1648, they made it only for a century. Now, uh, what's, he, uh, if, what's happening here? You already see voices here of saying enough. You see, now, I have a hard time believing voices are saying enough when all the Jews are very careful on this fast. I don't think it's a big jump to say that already people were not so keep, keeping it. Which is why Rabbanin were interested in maybe trying to find kulas that maybe it's okay not to keep it. Which is why we're having this discussion. However, then he says something fascinating. However, He was the Rav, we're in Lemberg. Lemberg. Lemberg is also Lvov. Today in Ukraine. Today they call it Lviv in Ukraine. They had over there the Pinkos of the Vadar Barotsis in Shul. Now, I don't know if this was the Pinkos of the official Vat, or every community had like minor copies of their own. And at Mavur Sham, it says here, the Bishnas Tof Yud in the year 1650, that same language that we saw before, we didn't have those words before. It was the Mashmos, but we didn't have those words before. They made this for all generations. Vim came, Shuvei Machalach no, no kulis. Therefore, I'm only writing a brief. And I'm not writing what I wrote in my response. My response doesn't matter. So here you basically see something interesting. A movement and a tendency and arguments to be nakel, but then someone who says, I checked the original source, and we can't. This is a fast that has to stick with us. Well, it didn't. Although it is true that there are Jews today, uh, especially in some Hasidic communities, who do fast on Chav Sivan, and it's not an easy fast, it's a long, uh, it's a long fast. Um, the vast majority of Jews, even that come from these regions, do not fast uh, uh, on this day. This, when, this year is the longest day. This day is the longest, 21st. it's June 21st, it's the longest day of the year, wow. Mm-hmm. It's Pashat, a very, very long fast. Now, the Rebbe spoke about this, and the Rebbe said that the Rebbeim did not fast on Chav Sivan. Let's see the Sicha Ba'aloyzcha, Tavshan on Aleph. The Magen Avram schreibt, as noigen lis anos esrim besivan b'chol malchus poilet. That is accustomed to fast on the 20th of Sivan. Afal b'kain, haben rabbeisenu nisienu zichazoynit kefirt. Afilu in the mizman, ven kvaytush z'mar b'cham admur is given in poilen, um kama haben zich demult kefirt dart and fasten. In other words, Poland before World War II, there was a lot of fasting going on. And the Fidik Rebbe was there. The Fidik Rebbe did not fast. The Rebbe obviously observed that. And it's, the Rebbe seems to be saying that the other Rebbeim also uh, didn't fast, which probably means that, uh, that there's a Masoida, that the, the Rebbeim of Chabad, again, it's outside the, Russia, is outside the jurisdiction of the Vadar Barata. So Bechlala could be that the Gzeira was never Chal uh, over there. Fine. But this is, the Fidik Rebbe did not fast even when he was in Poland. V'yesh Leimar, the Rebbe says an interesting thing. As das is nid pa'ifen, as bar Rabbi Seinu Nisenot gefelt chasushon de maila from tainis be'aser besivim. There's something good that comes out of every fast, whether it's kapara, whether it's spiritual rejuvenation, whether it's a time to refocus and recenter. You can't say that the rabbeim didn't have these advantages. Nor ad rabbe mahat maila shabazed durch nid fasting. Somehow you're able to get this through not fasting. Again, you need to see this, I think, in light of the movement away from fasting in, uh, in sources, in Hasidic sources, and how this is not the right way to serve Hashem. Which, but on the other hand, we're not going to admit that we're missing something, so what are we going to say? We're going to say that there's a different way. You could accomplish the same thing in other ways. That's what the Rebbe is saying here. And the Rebbe says that this is similar to the Maila of Purim over Yom Haki Purim. That what? It says in Kabbalah and Chassidus that Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. Why? Because the things you achieve Yom Kippur through fasting, on Purim, you're able to achieve through celebrating. Now, the Rebbe doesn't call for Jews to celebrate on Chav Sivan, but is saying that somehow these things could be accomplished through uh, eating. However, I'd like, the Rebbe doesn't say this. I would argue that's only the case if you know about the day, and if you know what it once was, and if you know what the history of the day is. So then, if you take a moment to reflect and to think about what Chav Sivan is and what it was, 
and how it used to be observed, and how today we have a different way of serving Hashem, so then I think this becomes a force. This becomes something. But if we're completely oblivious to what the day is, then Yeshla Ayin, at least on a conscious level, if what the Rebbe is talking about here becomes something uh, that's relevant. Okay. A few more small things to close out, uh, to close out this uh, shir. In Tav Shalom Ches, there was someone who wrote to the Rebbe that he's having his vart on Chav Sivan. And the Rebbe responded that it should be after Shkia. This is reported by Rabbi Manshine in his collection of Menhagen uh, with Shuwis. So that seems to be like, you know, Chav Sivan is not a day to celebrate. On the other hand, Rebbe approved weddings on Chav Sivan. In Tavshin Memdalid, there was a chasna. The Rebbe negated a date. And then when they put, gave on Chav Sivan, the Rebbe accepted that date. And I remember, I don't remember who, but I remember hearing from someone clearly that he had a, a, a simcha, and it was Chav Sivan, he wasn't sure, he wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, absolutely no problem, but I can't remember, I can't remember it right now. So that's interesting, maybe there was a change in this regard from the earlier years uh, to the later years. Okay, now let's come to Av HaRachamim. Av HaRachamim, I wanted to discuss in the next section, but we're not going to end up talking about the next section. I'll just give you a one-minute summary of what the next section is. If I ask you after all of this, is it permitted after a tragedy to make a new fast? What's the answer have to be? Yes? Yes. It was done twice. It was done after the incident in Blois in 1171, and it was done after Gzeres Tachvatach in 1648, 1649. And this was done for a huge population of Am Yisrael, and it was done with Deide Deides. So if someone were to say, let's make a tainus for what happened in World War II. Can you come back to them and say that it's Hepech Halach and Hepech Haminik? It would seem not. Well, the reality is that that's what Doyle Yisrael said in the 20th century. They said that it's Aser. Aser? How can you say Aser? Chaf Sivan is a big issue for all of the Rabbanim who wanted to say that. So how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? How do you answer that? So there's multiple approaches, and that is maybe something that we'll say for another time because it's at least 20, 25 minutes worth of material. But in this, uh, so that's one thing. Second thing is let's talk about Avarachmim because that's where I plan to tie in talk about the Crusaders a little, and Avarachim. Avarachim was instituted after the First Crusade, as far as I understand, the First Crusade. The First Crusade attacked the Jewish communities in the Rhineland in the end of Iyar and the beginning of Sivan, 1096. Rashi was still alive. This is way earlier, 1096. Spire, Mayans, and Worms. How do we know that? Because there's a peel that we read on Tisha B'Av that has the exact dates and exactly what happened in these three locations. This is the first crusade on their way to Eretz Yisrael to take Eretz Yisrael away from the, uh, to conquer it from the Muslims. They kill Jews in the Rhineland. Okay. Interesting. No tainus. There is no record of any tainus, even though this was a major shock to the Yidden of Ashkenaz. This is the first persecution that they really faced. So that's a conversation to be had. Why wasn't there a tainus? And that's part of the conversation that we need to have when we say, so... Chav Sivan, are you allowed to make a tainus or not? You could say Chav Sivan is evidence for yes, but you could say 1096 is evidence for no from the very fact that no tainus was made. But again, we're not going to go too far into that. This is where Avarachman was made. My understanding, I didn't look into this recently, but a number of years ago, I once read, I believe. The original Takana was to read Avarachman only Mevarchim Sivan. That was the time that a commemoration was necessary. It later expanded to do it all year. So then we said, okay, we're not going to do it to Shabbos Mavarchim, but it always made sense that it should be retained for Mavarchim Sivan, because that was the original Takana. But that is not uh, related to Blois 1171, and not related to Xedus uh, Tachvatar. It is interesting, however, that all of this is in Sivan. And we don't think of Sivan as a sad month. We think of Iyar, as a sad month, Sirius Oimer. We don't think of Sivan as a sad month. We think of Iyar as Sivan as a happy month. So, but the bottom line is, if you're looking for persecution, there were persecution happened. I once worked on a project for this day in Jewish history. The initial draft was this day in Jewish history. Every day, another major number of Yidden were killed and during the Holocaust. So it became ridiculous. You know, so that's, right? But that's true every single day of the year. So really, you don't have to go looking for uh, times and places of, of, of Jewish persecution. Okay, so let's come back for full circle. We began with the history of Tachvatah, uh, excuse me, of 
this day, we saw that there were, in the Big Adol, there were two major events. There's 1171, the first blood libel that happened in continental Europe, for which there was persecution uh, um, uh, by the government, and Jews were killed, uh, number one. Wasn't a blood libel, wasn't a blood libel. Crusades was not a blood libel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massacres happened before. And then, 1648, the events uh, Nemerov happened at that time. You could already see in 1648 that we're going to make a tightness. Maybe they didn't want to. Maybe you have to add this into the conversation. Maybe they didn't want to institute something new. They didn't feel so comfortable doing it. And so maybe they're like, let's bring back something that already Rabbeinu Tam had in an earlier generation, which is part of that other conversation about new fasting, which we're not going to talk about. And ultimately, the Rebbe's point points out that there is agreeing, so to speak, with the earlier sources. There is potential in this day. There is something special here. We saw Rabbeinu Tam talking about Kapara. We saw the Abderav linking it to Yom Kippur. And the, and the Rebbe says, also links it to Yom Kippur. He says that it's the Mile of Purim Legabe Yom HaKippurim. So that's the third source, putting Yom Kippur into the conversation, but saying that within Yom Kippur, there's a way to do Yom Kippur with eating. That's Purim. And that's what Chafsivan could be uh, for us to think about. Practically, one thing to take away is Taka to think about the talking and show. It's Taka something to think about given the relationship that it has uh, to this day of Chafsivan. Right.